Hello and welcome to the latest series of the Loose Head Podcast. This series focuses on coaching from implementing ideas to player management and all the ups and downs that feature in between. A different coach will join me every week to share their experience and expertise and today I'm delighted to welcome Wasps defensive coach Ian Costello. Ian, how are you getting on? Yeah, good Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh man, any time. It's a bit of a bit of a hectic week, I suppose, for you in the Wasp camp. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's an exciting week. This is the end of the season that you know we were hoping that we'd be involved in, and a couple of months ago probably didn't look too likely. And uh, yeah, just the last couple of months have given us a shot. So uh, looking forward to um, I suppose going against the champions of Europe next Saturday. Yeah, did you watch the game yesterday? Did you? Yeah, yeah, I did. Of course, they're. Um, yeah, look, we're under no illusions. They're a quality side. I think, to be fair, they've been the best side in Europe, um, you know, throughout the course of the season, and that's been coming for a for a few years. So, um, yeah, that's what you want, isn't it? A final, no one hands you a trophy. You've got to go out and earn it. So, um, we'll certainly have to earn it against Exeter. Well, that's it. Like, I mean, to be the best, you have to beat the best, don't you? Like, and yeah, they're yeah. they're proving that they are top of the pile, really. Like, to be fair, um, in Europe anyway, but. Uh, you know, like that five meter, when they get within five meters, like, I mean, it's relentless. How do you stop that? Like, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's it, you probably it just, you've got to deny them access. That that's the key thing. And I know it's, it's a hell of a lot easier said than done, but your whole game has to be based around not giving them access to the five, uh, to the five meter line. There's no team even close to as good as they are. And their conversion rate is ridiculous. So, you know, obviously you need a plan for how you're going to defend it. If they do get in there, but certainly, the you know, if you can be as proactive as possible around your discipline, you know, around your your phase defense out the field, how you set up your kicking game, where you choose to play the game, you know, without being conservative and staying true to who you are, you still have to set up differently to play against Exeter because, you know, I think Racing in the first um, fifteen minutes, I think were they nine penalties to one, I think at yes. one stage, you know, like for, for them even to be competitive against Exeter shows what a good side Racing are. But uh, usually you give Exeter a nine-point uh, or nine-penalty head start, you don't recover. Well, I asked you on the, the podcast today just to kind of talk to you about coaching and to tip into your expertise and everything. So if it's all right for you, I'll just kick off. Yeah, great. Uh, the first question I always like to ask coaches, and it's quite a reflective one, um, and there's no real straightforward answer, but it's why do you coach yourself? Um, yeah, I suppose it's probably pretty straightforward for me in that it's just as much a cliche as a sound, it's just a passion. Um, I think uh, I probably got the bug when I was on work experience from college. Uh, my second year, I spent a bit of time with the Monster branch in the development department. And up to that point, I probably thought S&C was definitely the route I was going to go. I was doing a sports science degree. But once I actually uh, saw the day-to-day workings of the job and, and got a little bit of a taste for it, um, you know, coaching was very much something I had as a, a as my ideal uh, career um, and obviously having it as a career is, is is a complete privilege and a lot of things have had to fall into place along the way but essentially it just comes back down to just being incredibly passionate about coaching teaching connecting with people and obviously a, a huge love for, for for rugby when it comes to coaching you've been i know you've been involved in munster and then you went over to nottingham in the championship you've you were a director of rugby in the ail and now you're with wasps in the premiership when it comes to you know moving to different teams, is the essence of coaching still the same regardless of the level you're coaching? Yeah, I think there's 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 definitely non-negotiables. You know, there's certain things that regardless of where you coach, um, you know, your coaching style, your your philosophy, you know, um, 
what you want to be associated with in terms of the teams that you're involved with. Um, they have to stay constant. Now, they evolve over time. Like I'd find even two years ago, um, some of it is unrecognizable to, you know, to where it's evolved to now. But I think the only thing that changes really is, is I think you have to adapt to the team that you're involved with. So coaching Wasps is very different than coaching Nottingham, Nottingham to Munster. And obviously I spent quite a few years at Bowles as well. So um, non-negotiables, rocks that don't change, but you definitely evolve over time. And I think it's very, very important that you know the players, you know the group, you know the environment, and you're able to adapt to that. I think that's really important for top-level coaching to adapt to the group of players that you're working with. The first thing I actually want to touch on there that you said is the non-negotiables. Can you give us an idea of maybe what those non-negotiables are? Yeah, I think um, I think everyone has their own individual slant on that. Um, for me, you know, work ethic, preparation, effort, things that are that are completely controllable, you know, and and you know, we talk at the moment, and it's easy to talk about, you know, the last couple of months. Habits and effort are probably the two things we talk most about and probably third is actually celebrating celebrating things simple things that we do really well so from the outside you, you kind of might you might look at was and you say it's quite complex and and you know i know at times we do score some very high-end tries but if the foundation of it is based on work rate effort and then the habits of the simple things done exceptionally well on a consistent basis and they have to hold up under pressure so they'd probably be you know that would be from a general coaching point of view, the non-negotiables. And then you're going to have non-negotiables in your own area as well. You're going to have non-negotiables. So, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a while in, in defence. There's going to be certain foundations on which, you you know, we focused on really enjoying doing the simple things very, very well and taking a huge amount of pride in it. When it comes then as well to adapting, you mentioned that already. Adapting can come in many different forms. Like, I mean, it could be like let's say for example take the virus that we're you know that's causing chaos i suppose all around the world at the moment or it could be something as simple as your defensive captain is missing for a game and how do you react to that when it comes to adapting to these different situations can it be difficult to kind of keep morale up in the team or is it a case of look this is a, this is what it is we're just going to have to deal with it at the end of the day yeah i think it's 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 probably a little bit of both um we tried to theme this whole period when when we came back after uh, lockdown, and even the prep, the bit when we were, you know, the period when we were in lockdown, we did a lot of work remotely, a lot of work around our skills, conditioning, and how we connected as a group, and we had a lot of, you know, um, competitive stuff going in the background, mostly about keeping us connected, to be honest with you. But since we came back, the primary focus or the main theme for us to pick one was uh, adapting. So we just said the team who adapts best to you know, to COVID, the situations that throws up, who adapts to the new interpretations of the laws. You know, we changed the way we train. We changed from a, a traditional model to a three-day-a-week model where we went Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. How we adapt to that is going to decide how successful we are. We're going to be playing, you know, there was one week we played um, 45 players across two games. We won both games. That was us having to adapt, preparing one team in the background while the other one is preparing, but still making each game as important as we could. Um, the bath game, I, I don't know, did you see it? But that was literally like a, a case study in how you adapt. You know, we we, we lost two props. We lost um, uh, a full back early. We lost our captain. We literally, um, it, it was like a, a, a case study, as I said, to test how adaptable we were. And a lot of the stuff we'd done in the previous few months was around, you know, uh, what if scenarios, situational coaching, 
Um, and as like forwards coach would, you know, we'd nobody throw the ball into the line out that day. For example, we had to work between Dan Robson and Lou said prop. Those scenarios, believe it or not, had been covered. You know, when you go, when you get a yellow card, we had that covered, etc. And then there's certain ones that you just can't, um, you know, you don't expect or you don't necessarily plan for them. But what you try to do is you try to have enough covered throughout your uh, training sessions on and off the pitch so that boys are equipped to adapt with them. Uh, and something that something I put a lot of stock on now is we have a very strong leadership group. And I think uh, in fairness to Lee, he did a lot of work in the background on that throughout lockdown. So he was meeting them once a week and we recognized we needed to develop a core leadership group and another group underneath it for that period. Uh, and that's something that's really stood to us. And that group take a huge amount of ownership. And I think that's been one of the... Uh, that's been probably the template for some of our success around adaptability. Having that adaptability, but also that leadership group is probably massive because as a coach or as coaches, let's say, players can often see you as the person with all the answers, even if you don't have them yourself. But I imagine due to cultivating those relationships, you can turn around and say, look, I actually don't know and be able to be vulnerable with them, which you wouldn't probably be able to do otherwise if you didn't cultivate that relationship. Yeah, I think that's one of the, you've, you've hit on one of the key things, I think, between a young coach and probably a more experienced coach. As a young coach, you feel you have to have all the answers, you have to have them on your fingertips. And, you know, yes, there are certain things, you know, from a knowledge point of view that, you know, you need to be able to react to, react to instantly. But I think you become more and more comfortable with uh, um, facilitating rather than having to be prescriptive all the time. And I'll just give you an example. We, we have an excellent defense. I'm very, very lucky. I have an excellent defensive leadership group. Like in that group, you've got, you know, Brad Shields, who's won a super rugby title. You've got Malachi Fekatoa, you know, a world-class defender. You throw in Jack Willis, who, who obviously, you know, needs no introduction around the breakdown, etc. And again, a few others there that all contribute. So we operate in a, in a dual management type of way. And once we got that, uh, that process evolved a little bit. Essentially, I would bounce everything off them. I would, you know, look for input off them around messaging, around teams. They, they would each have a job description each week of things that they drive. So suddenly you've got seven or eight coaches on the pitch. Uh, and that's probably been one of the things that was that uh, maybe Nottingham, I probably just uh, brought that in around a, a, a not, not necessarily defence, around uh, team drivers and driving our game. And that's something I thought worked really well at Nottingham and I brought it to WAS. And it's something I certainly in any other job that would now be a core foundation of any work that I do. And I think that, um, you know, the All Blacks probably lead the way in that in terms of sharing responsibility and that dual management type system. And I definitely find that, you know, vulnerability doesn't come into it. Ego doesn't come into it. It's a case of getting, you know, uh, the best systems in place, best structures. And if players are invested and they have ownership, they're far more likely to de deliver, deliver on the pitch. It shows you trust them. It shows you value their input. So they're invested. And I think, uh, you know, for me anyway, for now, that's a bit of a no-brainer. That's the way to go forward to get the most out of players. Just that, that you mentioned all those defensive leaders and having seven or eight captains on the pitch. I imagine that giving that freedom to those players takes an awful lot like a huge amount of responsibility off your shoulders. Like you're still, don't get me wrong, implementing the system, but you don't need to be on the back of those guys just saying, come on, like, let's get this done properly. Like, cause you'll have, like you said, Fekatoa or Brad Shields or something willing to pull up the other lad. Yeah, it's, you're dead right. And it takes a bit of work to get to that stage. And that's what I love about, you know, coaching it at any level, really. Again, it's, 
you know, whether it's, whether it's business, whether it's sport is, you know, the more you bring people with you and the more you involve people, uh, as I said, they become a lot more invested. And there is a lot of work to and there is a lot of skill to it and you have to develop it over time and you probably hand it over to them bit by bit. Um, so you go, as I said, from prescribing a lot to being a lot more of a facilitator and you guide the process a lot more. So what I find is it, it isn't any less work, I have to say. Um, you just end up with a better output and it, there's better delivery on the pitch and there's stronger messaging and more accountability, more traceability. But actually, as a coach, you still do all the same preparation that you do. So day one, when we come in, we'd always meet as a defense group. We'd always have lunch together. And that would be an informal way to touch base about the game previously what the review was and then how we're looking forward. So we start to plant seeds and I get as much out of that as they would. So I'd present maybe like, for example, this week, you know, what we've seen in Exeter, what we're thinking, what are the main messages? And then they provide input the other way. So we end up with a much better product at the end of it, much more aligned, much more consistent. And then that flows throughout the week. And that's something that I find again, the more I coach, the tighter that messaging is, the more, connected the players are to that messaging to that team it just becomes a higher sense of purpose because they've been involved in it and then it just kind of grows exponentially and that's something that again the last couple of years as a coach has been one of my biggest learnings when it comes to actually implementing a defensive structure what pillars of that structure or that plan would you focus on yeah i think there's two ways you can look at that question you can look at it technically and Technically, it's probably the easier part, if that if if that makes sense. And I, I'll just I'll explain what I mean is that you we if you have a narrow focus, you get a much a much bigger return. And that's something that we had a really unique opportunity to reflect on um, when the season halted with 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 Corona, obviously. And we had a chance to go away and completely tear apart the first uh, half of our season. And what are the things we needed to focus on to make the, the biggest difference for the second half? So we had a real narrow focus and we came down to the speed and collisions. So we came down to the speed we do things at and we came down to collisions and our contact work. And then there was an area of our game and in our 22 that we just felt um, the conversion rate was far too high from an opposition point of view. So we messaged and themed around those three things and we didn't move away from it. So everything was around how do we improve our collisions we did an extra session off the pitch. We did an extra session off the pitch. Um, by off the pitch, sorry, I mean away from the main sessions. It was a standalone 17, 18-minute contact session. We constantly hammered basics that got us into the best position to make a tackle. And you tie that in with the contact work. That was your collisions. Speed, we tied everything in with our S&C, conditioning, etc. Speed off the ground, speed to set. And we created accountability and traceability across that. And then from a the 22 point of view, with the defence group, we worked out themes, uh, we, we themed that and we messaged around and we set out some very clear targets. And sometimes just putting that focus on it um, resulted in very positive change. So they were the kind of the big picture things. And, and the things that we probably hang our hat on would be, you know, we're a chop tackle team. We're all about putting people on the deck. So you've got to get off the line to to chop people, put them on the ground. So always non-negotiables would invest, set early, get off the line and chop. That would be our sequence. Um, and then as a, as, a, as a big picture, we focused on shutdown. How can we shut down teams as fast as possible? And, and since day one, our, our defensive philosophy is desperation to get the ball back. So all our actions have to be uh, reflecting that desperation to get the ball back. And that's our DNA. So they're the big picture ones. There's lots of little technical things in between it around spacing, around width, along with defending the ball, 
uh, etc. But I keep coming back to those. I keep coming back to the, that that narrow focus on a couple of key technical things, and then around our big picture identity, philosophy, etc. And then we drive that all the time. Just on that narrow focus, you talked about like investing, getting set, get off the line, and putting them to deck. They're all controllables, I suppose. Like invest, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get off the line. I'm going to make that tackle. But I imagine you also coach being comfortable in that chaos. Like let's say, for example, when you're playing Exeter, you're thinking to yourself, right, I can get set. I can get off the line. But you can't control, let's say, what Jack Knoll is about to do or what, you know, yours is about to do. You just have to kind of react to it. But I imagine you coach being comfortable in that chaos as well, that training. Yeah, so I'll work backwards on that. Just in terms of, like, like let's let's use an example like Jack Knoll or or O'Flaherty or Hogg, where they square you up and they kick out. Very similar to how you prepare to play against Radrandra, where they're constantly asking questions of you with footwork evasion, etc. So we just constantly talk about working in chains, working in units, working in threes. So yes, you've got your individual responsibility. But essentially, if we're in threes, you've got a hunt on your inside, you can adjust on your outside, someone's responsible for the ball. And from that point of view, there's, I suppose, safety in numbers and giving the guy the freedom to, to go and make that tackle by giving the security and knowing what's around him. So things like that, uh, yeah, you're dead right. Um, and then we put systems and structures in place around them where you've got a hunt defender, a catch up on the inside. You know, you'd stay high on the inside. We've started playing a lot higher on the outside, even though we stay neutral and we stay open. Uh, and we've had a bit of success out of that. So you're constantly adding pieces that support um, the person who's got the key decision to make or he's got to execute. So you've got your individual focus points, but obviously it works within a system. So that's, you know, from a, from, from, from a technical point of view. And I think when you prepare to play someone like uh, Exeter or, or you know Bristol you talk about being comfortable in chaos like I know you've 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 probably seen us play quite a bit we constantly train in chaos like constantly it's some of our sessions are like unbelievably uncomfortable and it took the players after lockdown a while to adapt to especially our third session of the week so our Wednesday if we have a our day three if we're playing on a on a Saturday our big session is on a Wednesday we'll be off Thursday captains run Friday so you, you, we're set up to be very fresh towards the end of the week, but um, Wednesday session is like playing another match. It genuinely is in terms of the intensity, in terms of the chaos. And we do so little set piece. It's all unstructured. It's multiple balls. It's long bouts. And I really think the way we've trained and, and you know, the way Lee has designed our sessions in conjunction with our, you know, our new S&C department is, has been a massive driver for, for our performances over the last while. We just keep finding different ways to win. We don't have to rely on set-piece attack, transition attack, your defence, kicking game. Each game each game has been something different. Um, and don't get me wrong, you have to be at a consistent level. But that training and chaos, um, and come back to what you talked about being adapted, adaptable, um, you, you, don't, you couldn't prepare any better way, I think, to, to be adaptable. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question in terms of a combination of, of uh, both how you train and individually how you set up your system. No, it does, because even a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure you've seen the clip a hundred times, hundreds of times now at this stage, it was a tackle from Fekitoa, and he came up the line, he made the read, so he realised the player in front of him wasn't getting the ball, went straight past him, so there's that comfortable in chaos. But for me, it was the tackle he made afterwards on the player. He had the inside leg, inside shoulder, just reefed up that outside leg, drove him back. It was a massive positive tackle, but it all came from 
a being comfortable with his own read but b just doing the basics exceptionally well which is something you talked about was a non-negotiable earlier so you almost have that mix of everything you spoke about in that one perfect moment yeah malachi again is is i'm I'm sure he won't mind me saying this and when he came in at the start he, he was he was struggling a little bit around consistency um he was he was capable of making big reads like that and he was capable of of just making massive plays but he would operate out of system at times um, and over the previous couple of years he'd been playing there hadn't been as much attention he, he would say open there hadn't been as much attention to detail some, to some of those aspects and it, there was a little bit of tension a little bit of conflict at the start and it took us a while to settle and you know like I would have watched Malachi as as a fan when he played with the Highlanders and went this guy is you know world class and then you find out he's coming into your team and you you just know how much of a difference that's going to make to to you defensively and when he walks in day one and he says uh you know uh, I want to be part of the defense group I'm all about defense and you're saying oh this is this is uh you know this is brilliant and he has had to grow he's had to adapt and he's had to really work hard in this game and I think that read you saw um is quite consistent now so what he does now is he brought an awful lot more control to his game. He brings other people with him. So on that shot, they had an extra defender outside. So if that ball went, they had two more outside. Uh, actually, technically, they had three. Our winger was coming with him. So our wingers have learned to read him. They've learned that in case someone gets away a miracle pass, they shut down the next one. Our full back was coming on to second last. And you can say, yeah, the last guy was free. And he was, but he doesn't have the ball. So until he has the ball, you know, that's not necessarily an issue. And Malachi made a really, really good read. But most of that would be based on, again, simple principles, you know, is he go, he'll go, he'll fire off the line, he'll load, he'll always be loaded, and then he'll go again. So I think previously with, with Malachi at times, he wouldn't have that middle phase. He wouldn't be loaded, so he wouldn't be as controlled. Whereas now... Uh, it's just on a consistent basis. He knows when he can arrive with the ball. So if the ball's in the air, he can go. If the ball's in someone's hands, he has to load. So there are some of the simple principles that, you know, if, we, if you want to get into the technical side of it, there's the things where he has been uh, executing really consistently now. But then there has to be other guys around him that understand that and come with him as well. When it comes to practicing the basics, let's say just simple everyday basics, how often do you do that as a professional club, let's say? Um, as I said to you, the contact area, so tackle, tackle, contest, uh, ball carry and breakdown, we, we, we've put outside the main sessions. So basically, when we cross the white line to train, it's at a certain intensity. We have a learning day, we have a, a fast day, and we have a, you know, a really dense day, a really highly conditioned day. And it doesn't, that kind of work doesn't always fit in there uh, on the Tuesday or Wednesday. So we do it as a standalone session. It's not something I had done before, something Lee talked about and we sat down and we agreed that this would bring us forward and it has made a massive difference. So, you know, you're looking at your footwork, into, I suppose, sorry, if I was to break it down, you're looking at two things. You're looking at how you get to the tackle and then you're looking at what you do when you get there. Uh, we can do a lot of work on our agility, a lot of work on our footwork, our profile, our tackle entry, shoulder contact, etc. And then you've got the actual execution side of it and, and a massive focus for us. And I'm glad you said that about Malachi was leg drive. Something, something someone said to me over the lockdown was whoever... You know, whoever wins legs wins the collision. Simple as that. Whoever keeps legs the longest wins the collision. And that came from some good CPD with a with a rugby league coach. And that's something we've just driven all lockdown. So that's that in terms of basics. And the other thing from a defensive point of view, we do more than anything else is reads. So where we we 
we always make our decisions off the ball. So we're always defending the ball. We're always ball aware. Yes, you want to scan, but I had to actually keep talking to myself about not going away from the basics. I had to tell myself as a coach, never mind as a player, don't get bored with doing the basics. So we're constantly doing two on twos, two on threes, uh, two plus one V2. We keep evolving and changing the situation, numbers up, numbers down. Uh, I would say we would do that three times a week in three different sessions at different speeds and different tempos. But they'd be the two things from a, from a, a fundamentals point of view that we just never go away from now. In terms of all the players you've coached, when it comes to, and I'm just focusing on the defensive side of today now, but when it comes to, let's say, some of the best defensive players you've coached, what makes them the best defensive player? Yeah, that's um, yeah, it's a tough question. Really good question. A tough question. I think if I kind of um, the easy thing again start, I suppose with, with with the players that I'm working with now, and it's very, very difficult because you don't want to single out uh, players. But if I can if I can highlight certain attributes that certain people have, uh, let's let's be really obvious. Let's start with the obvious one, Jack Willis. Um, Jack Willis genuinely is a freak in terms of in terms of his, his post-tackle work, his tackle contest. I've never, ever seen anybody as quick, as strong, as agile, as flexible over the ball. And that ties in with his mindset. He's just an absolute competitor. Um, and genuinely, I've seen some really, really good jacklers. I've never seen anything at that level. So when you've got somebody like that in your defensive team, you're, um, you know, you're at a huge advantage. And we have a contact coach, a guy called Matt Everard, who does a huge amount of technical work as well. An excellent young coach, an awful lot of attention to the detail on that both sides of the box. That really helps. Um, you know, other attributes. I'm just going to pick people with different attributes. You look at yeah, somebody yeah, like on, yeah. uh, Brad, Brad Shields. You know, Brad Shields would probably be someone that you'd appreciate more and more when you go back and look at the game again and again. You know, um, you know, to borrow a phrase, we talk a lot about how many battles you can get into, get into as many as you possibly can. You know, he'll consistently be up there in terms of the the maximum amount of collisions he he mightn't have the headlines but his kick j stuff so just the effort the work rate and the desire to get into as many battles as you possibly can you know there's kind of kind of two that stand out at the moment um, you've obviously talked about malachi and his ability to to change a game with some of his of his collision work um, then other little things as well that maybe mightn't be as attractive or mightn't be as glamorous but we put a huge emphasis on kick chase um, and Josh Bassett is, is, is a winger who, who every single time the ball is kicked, you'd have an expectation that he's going to get it back. You know, there, there's a huge amount of skill in it in terms of his timing, uh, his technique, but really it's just that desire. And again, tapping back into our desperation um, to get the ball back as quick as we possibly can. That's a few of the, the current ones. Um, you know, I think there's some obvious ones from, from Munster days as well, the, the Peter Mannies and the Paul O'Connell in terms of work rate as well. Um, so yeah, I think maybe they'd be just a few to cover some of the, the attributes that I think are, that make players stand out. There's actually one that you touched on and it's one that I, like I'm massive on and even my own team now, I'd say are sick to death hearing me say it, but it's working off the ball. And yes. you, like, I, I firmly believe that working off the ball will make you look like a superstar. Even like if you, if you don't actually touch it or get a touch in the end, you've still either, you know, you've taken out an attacker or you, you've helped your team set up for the turnover maybe the next phase or two phases later, but working off the ball is a massive one. And also the way you mentioned there that, you know, Malachi Fekatoa, he looks to change a game with his hits. It's getting young players to realize that those hits will come, but not to chase them. You know, yeah. don't spend the whole game kind of wondering 
where it's going to come from kind of a thing yeah so yeah no i'll two parts the first part to your question um there's nothing i hold higher than work off the ball in terms of in terms of a point of difference in your defense so um who was really good for me was when andy farrell was a consultant uh, in our second year of my sorry my last year at munster and he would watch a lot of the game from the wide lens. So you need to talk, where would line speed come from? Line speed would come from just wanting to get off the line. But you actually look at it and how much of the work is done 10 seconds earlier, 15 seconds earlier. So, you know, I'll just be specific on that. So we talk about investing. So we make it dead simple. You invest early, you're either set first or you're not. So it's a bit like the cliche, you know, you can't be half pregnant. You either are or you aren't. So you're either set first or you're not. So we make it dead simple and we create that traceability and we create that accountability. So off the ball, we never allow any dips in our line and we target them constantly. So we would have a system, which I'll come back to if you want to in a minute. Um, I just use two measures for work rate. And uh, generally the negative side of it, or our cops as we call them, would be where you don't work hard enough off the balls. So we're constantly policing them. And now they're a very, very strong, instinctive, hardwired habit. So we don't, you know, no dips in the line, no opening up the seams as the ball is getting away from you, no cutting down under the line. What does your body language like? Are you loaded each time? Are you loaded, ready to fire? I know I'm using terminology here, but we connect all our terminology. So our fire is off the line. So we always, again, simple question, are you loaded or not? Are you loaded, ready to go? If I took a still image, which we do an awful lot in video review, or if somebody was watching you from the sideline, do they know you're definitely getting off the line? And then you become, you go into a positive cycle of habits or it's, it's a keystone habit in terms of it leads to others. So sometimes you bring it back to a couple of things that are uh, very controllable and then it just has a knock-on positive effect. So I couldn't agree with you more in terms of work off the ball. Both sides, I'm talking about D, but you know, Oh, and, and attack as well, massively, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah, like, yeah. I just, again, our counterattack, always, always back behind the ball, ready to go. Whether we go or not, now we have a decision, but we're always back. So again, straight question, Lee and, and, and Gleese, our attack coach, would ask, are you set? Are you ready to go? We might choose to kick, and quite often we will, because we're quite pragmatic and we have some, we have some very, very good kickers in our back line, but it allows us be, it allows us make decisions. Um, and I think that's where the game slows down. It gets an awful lot easier if you get that work down off the ball. So you can probably tell it's something I'm incredibly passionate about. I think, again, that is a point of difference from really, really good coaching and really, really good teams. That's where that unseen work and that work off the ball uh, has such a knock-on effect. Um, so, yeah, I think that was, um, that was the, the first part of your question. Just remind me the, the second part again, Jeff. I was just saying how a positive tackle or a, a massive impact, let's say, can change a game, but it's important not to chase that massive hit yourself. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, that's, no, it's a really good point. And I think the way you coach that again for me is you go back to something I said earlier is just consistency around doing the simple things exceptionally well. So are you working for the team? Um, and I'll bring you back to our kind of second our secondary um, philosophy around our defence, our identity around our fence is, you know, be the guy that players want to defend with. And look, I've, I've taken that uh, unashamedly from, from Anthony Foley, who obviously I worked with for a long time. And he just asked boys all along, would somebody want to defend with you? Would somebody want to defend with you? And if you're asking that question about, you know, are we desperate to get the ball back? And are you the kind of guy that somebody wants to defend with? And what does that look like? What does it look like, you know, in terms of, 
you know, do you invest, where you're prepared to put your head, but also talking to somebody, bringing him with you, et cetera. And I think if you have that team first attitude and you have that, that attitude where you want to be the guy people want to defend with, I think it's just doing simple things really, really well. And I think they look after themselves. You know, I think it'd be um, not, not an analogy that's easy to use in England, but it's like take the points and the goals will come really, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think the English one might be look after the pennies and the pounds will come. Um, but I haven't found a really good one for to cross over to English terminology yet. Yeah, but like it's, did you find when you were working in the AIL, players, I should say, sometimes put a massive emphasis on, oh, I'm going to smash your man rather than having that, okay, this is our system, trust the system. And maybe the lower the league you go, the more fellas are just lining up thinking, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to smash someone now today rather than thinking, okay, I'm going to defend really well. And I think there is a difference in that kind of mindset. Yeah, I'm, um, I think that I think that applies like I'm just trying to think again to my most recent experiences and I know especially my first year at WAS we had a lot of issues with people operating outside the system and trust trust the system was a was a massive um focus point for us and when we started to trust the system good things started to happen and we became an awful lot more consistent you know yes we wanted to be aggressive yes we want to get the ball back you want to make good decisions. You want to be a decision-making team. You know, you want to be consistent around your execution. Now, there's no point doing nine things really well and then one thing costs your team a result. In attack, sometimes you get away with that. In defense, you don't. In defense, you don't have that luxury of defending eight set pieces really well and then they score off two on first phase and you've had a bad day. So does it happen? I think it's happened with every single team that I've, that I, that I've worked with at, at, at every level. And it's around... Again, as a coach, your skill to educate players on the positives around staying in system, showing them how more effective and destructive they can be within, um, within our system. So basically, what do you want to achieve? Well, I want to do this. Well, I'm going to show you how you can do that even better within the system. And I think that's the challenges of, of coaching is that everything is individual. Everything is mini unit. Everything is unit. Everything is team. And that's why, you know, that's why rugby is so class to coach because there's all those little pieces of the game. Um, and even go back to the Malachi conversation, that for me was something I had to give an awful lot of thought to before I sat down and showed him clips or sat down because this is an odd like this is a guy who has, you know, what was you know is one of the best defenders in the world. But it doesn't matter if they've got a good mindset and they're you know they're open minded and they want to grow. And as a coach, you take time to really think about what that message is and how you deliver it and what the mechanism is to deliver it. I think. Um, that's where you can get an awful lot of satisfaction out of coaching. So I think that's at all levels, Jeff. Coming back to what you said about trusting the system, um, I don't think you mind me saying that Wasps were in a bit of a slump, maybe pre-COVID, but when it comes to trusting the system and getting out of that slump, I know there's no magic formula. Probably winning has a massive impact, obviously. But how do you approach taking a team that maybe is doubtful of the system because of the situation they're in and making them believe that it will come good? Yeah, I, I think um, this is obviously something we've, we've done a lot of reflecting on. And in a week or two's time, we really have to unpack that. I think it's really, really important we get to the bottom of, you know, what has been at the back of what has been an incredibly successful period for us and contrasted with, with, with um, prior to that. We've obviously talked a bit, have to sit down and reflect on that because those learnings could be the difference between us maintaining, um, you know, sustaining uh, success other than it being fleeting I suppose so I could probably come back to you know something Lee talks about and, and Lee has done like he's done like 
such a difficult job to take over the way he did. And he's done an incredible job. Um, look, I'm biased because I worked with, with Lee for, for two years before that. He's an incredibly good guy. But actually, uh, the job he's done as a head coach around the environment and the culture and the belief and the confidence. Um, so I'll touch on confidence first and I'll come back to enjoyment. We talked about this about two, three days ago. We felt it was at an all-time low after the Leicester game when we lost the game that we, we should have won comfortably. Um, and that was the week that Di left. There was a lot of upheaval, a lot of emotion. And we sat down and had a bit of a clear the air the following day in a review. And it came back to identity. It came back to who we are. How do we play? Yes, we did tidy up a few technical things, but we just had to reset and say, okay, this is who we are. This is who we want to be. This is how we want to play. This is how we're going to achieve it. And everybody was on board. And there was a bit of excitement. And no, we didn't think we were going to go out and put 60 points on Saris the following Friday night, but we did. And as I learned uh, my last year, and particularly at, at, um, at Munster, is when your confidence is high, you look a hell of a lot better than you are. And when your confidence is low, you look a hell of a lot worse than, the, than you are. The truth is somewhere in between. But I think it's important to stay out of your own way when the confidence is high. And look, there's no doubt with our results over the last while, we're riding you know, a bit of a crest of a wave in terms of our confidence and belief. But it does come back to the things that I talked about. Lee made it about team. He made it about enjoying it. What kind of team did he want to be part of? He wanted to be you know, a team that enjoyed itself, that worked really hard, that focused on the habits, that highlighted the unseen work. And genuinely, I couldn't give enough credit for how consistent that messaging has been. So you, know, you tie that into celebrating and putting it up on lights when somebody delivers the things that you think are important to the team. Now everybody wants to be, we're all human. We all want to be put up on lights. We all want to be one that's doing the unseen work. We all want to be the one that's doing the, the basics really well. So essentially, it's, it came back to that. We're, we're unbelievably lucky that there was a break. We had a chance to reflect. I spoke to you about some around, you know, uh, defensively, and we had a chance to, to press that reset button, which you, which you don't always get. We had a lot of change at the club. Not only Lee, we, we had two new forwards coach comes in, come in, Richard Blaze and, and Neil Fox have done a really good job. Uh, Martin Gleeson took over a little bit more of the day-to-day attack, and he brought his own, like, you know, uh, his own slant to that and some added some really, really smart detail. And then our S&C department changed completely. So we changed how we prepared to play, and, and it was so specific to the way we played. So those big-picture things that I talked about that Lee is really consistent on, and actually some change that we had an opportunity to implement as well, that's probably been at the core of it. And that's probably what will come out in our, in our debrief and our reflection after the season. Coming back to that identity that you said you revisited after the Leinster game, like you've been involved in Bowes, Munster, over in Nottingham as well, like in now in Wasps. Is identity something you need to have regardless of the level of club you're in? Like even if it's J1, let's say, or even if it's Premiership, or even if it's whatever, you know, international, is that sense of identity something that needs to be instilled or is it something you could almost get away with because performance kind of like rugby's a performance driven game therefore if you're winning that's kind of glossed over i don't think there's any consistently high performing team over any period of time that doesn't have a clear identity i think that you know there's got to be a sense of higher purpose there's got to be something that you're connected to you know the obvious example is all blacks leave the jersey in a better place than you found it um but there's so many right across sport without getting too deep into it but you know um, for me, you have to be really clear, and you've heard me refer 
to the area I coach at the moment and being really clear on what that identity is, what that philosophy is, and keep coming back to it. And you have to, it can't be words, it has to be actions. You know, your environment, your culture, call it whatever you want, has to be about what you do every day. So, you know, again, borrowing a, a phrase from, from, you know, a player that I would have hugely respected at Munster would always say, if somebody looked over the wall and saw you for the first time, what would he say about you? If somebody was in the crowd in Tolman Park looking down and watching you play, can they relate to that performance? Can they identify with that performance? Do they know what you stand for and what you represent by the way you play? And that should be around, yeah, everything you do on and off the pitch. You know, if you accept something you're promoting it you know things like that and you've got to establish some some uh non-negotiables or, or core values core beliefs that fuel that identity so again it's something that i would if i was giving advice to anybody coaching at any level watch your identity it might be to have fun it might be to be social it doesn't matter what's your common cause what do you all stand for do you all know what you're playing for what's that sense of purpose that, that you all have and that's so powerful and that comes back to how you operate you know i talk about a dual management system and would say whether it's the defense group whether it's an attack group whether it's our key game drivers the more they're involved the more they feel that their opinion is valued the more that input that they have it's just win-win and it just becomes such a positive cycle and i think that all adds to the identity and they're the things that i really feel that somebody i wish somebody had told me about 10 years ago and that's the kind of stuff that in the last three or four years, if you were to say, well, what's your biggest learnings? It's probably around that stuff. It's around that area and how important that is. As I said earlier, you were involved with Bowes, with Munster, and then over to Nottingham. But just as your own kind of journey as a coach, you were leaving a team in Munster that was involved, let's say, pretty much every season in, well, it was every season in Europe, and you were heading over to a championship side. And I know it was to be a head coach and to, to you know, to advance your own career, but was it a frightening move for you or were you in a mindset of this is going to advance me as a coach, no matter how frightening it is, it's still the right step for me. Um, yeah, there's probably a few different ways to look at that. So firstly, yes, it was, it was something that I was nervous about. Um, it's something that I felt I had to do. Um, it was a niche that I had to scratch around head coach experience. It also, I needed to get out of the bubble and you don't realize when you get out of it, how easy it was to get out of it. You think it's a way bigger decision than it is. You know, and I had some family circumstances at the time that made that much more difficult. Plus uh, my wife was pregnant and I, I lived over here for seven months and, and before they moved over. And so there's loads of reasons not to move, but I've never regretted it for a second. It was incredibly positive. Having said all that, I loved Munster. I, like you grow up wanting to play for Munster. You know, I, I hadn't played at a high level, you know, um, you know, above AIL more or less. And to get an opportunity to, to work for a, a team like Munster was, you know, was such a privilege. Um, I did three years odd in the academy. Uh, I took a break to coach Bowes because it was important that I was working with a team week in, week out. And then I was just really fortunate that Tony McGahan gave me an opportunity in the skills route. And that obviously, you know, went from working with Tony to, to Rob Penny and then to Axel. Um, there's a shelf life. And all in all, I was probably in Munster for nine years, eight or nine years throughout the system. And if you really want to be, and, and I really do, I'm really ambitious about, you know, being as good as I possibly can be, you know, being the best coach I possibly can. Wherever that ends up, it ends up. But you need to experience different things. You need to experience different environments. You need to work with different people, different cultures. There's so many different ways to learn. And as I said, if I was, again, advising my younger self or I could advise somebody else's, don't be afraid of that. It needs to be the right move and it needs to be for the right 
reasons. Um, Nottingham made it very, very easy for me to move. They, when I met them and and how they sold the club and packaged the club, and it was completely, th- it was it, it all transpired has been really, really accurate. I loved the two years that I was here. Um, yes, you missed the big days. You know, you missed Holman Park on a Saturday evening so much. Like there's, it's hard to explain to people what that's like um, unless they've actually been in and been part of it. And you knew that was the thing that you're probably going to miss most. So I think, you know, three years after leaving or nearly four years after leaving to be involved in a premiership final is so exciting. It's, it's something that I really hoped we'd get back to big games like this and being involved in a semi-final last week was incredible. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's been a, it's been an incredible journey. I've been incredibly lucky, um, but that that decision to leave and let's be honest as well, you know, the last couple of years at Munster, especially the last one, you know, it didn't go well as as it needed to go, and for the standards that Munster are used to operating at. So I think it was a good time for all concerned, and look, so far so good, um, and it is early days. So far so good. I've really enjoyed it. I asked that question for two levels: first, to see your own thoughts, but also behind you. I can see a print of Limerick and also of Nottingham. Um, I think I have the exact same print as you there of Limerick in the kitchen. It's that kind of idea of identity. Like yeah. you've, you've clearly not forgotten your own, like, you know, and you've probably brought that forward. But what would you say you've taken from, let's say, uh, Munster into Bowes, Bowes, well, back to Munster, I suppose, then Munster to Nottingham and then now to Wasps? Yeah, I think to go first, I'm very, very proud of, of, of where I'm, I'm from and, you know, Louise, my wife, is on a sabbatical at the moment. So you talk about decisions. And again, we'll make decisions as a family that may or may not be the best thing for my coaching. You know, Louise has sacrificed five years. And you talk about, you know, family reasons. And as I said to you, she was expecting our daughter, Quiva, the first one. So we got a sneaky extra year. So essentially six years and they are definitely going home. And again, there's, there's personal reasons for that as to why Louise is definitely going home and, and those who know me will, will, will know what, the, what that's about and so I have to enjoy every you know every minute of it and Limerick is my home Limerick is my home it's where I want to go back to definitely um, and if I'm able to fortunate enough to stay in rugby um, at this level brilliant if not so be it it's about enjoying you know all these opportunities that, that, that are there now uh, and for me I suppose when you talk about you take a bit you asked what did I get from different places you get something from everywhere you know I'm I'm doing a project at the moment for a little course that I'm doing and a bit of it is about your your life story and it's a really interesting exercise because you look at what shapes you as a coach and it's all about your experiences and it's all about the people you met and what you took from them so you know whether it was Hamish Adams who who brought me into the Munster Academy Mike Jusbury and Martin Sullivan who gave me an opportunity in Bowes um, you know to Tony McGahan uh, Declan Kidney, etc. Every single one of them you took something from. You know, you know, Declan, you go, look how he deals with people. Look how he makes people feel. You know, Tony, you you would have said, look at his attention to detail. You know, everybody was so clear what they were doing. And then Rob Penny made people feel like they could go through walls with with innovation and creativity. And nobody knew the game as well as Axel. Um, and the same thing now with people that I'm working with is whether they're uh snc coaches that you work with or whether it's your boss you know lee i've learned so much off lee um in the last in the last while and then people like say martin gleason i work with now who's i he won't mind me saying was very very different you know he's from a rugby league background north of north of england and some of his the technical points around his attack and some of his understanding and defense through a different lens than i've ever looked at it 
um, you know, we're sitting down at the moment like thick as thieves swapping ideas for attack and defense. And almost like, a, as I said, we're, we're so different. Uh, and so is our coaching group. But that diversity brings out the best in all of us. And as long as you leave your egos, as long as you said, like, you, know, you don't mind being vulnerable, you don't mind asking questions, I just think you want to be very foolish not to pick up something off everybody you work with in every environment. Sorry, a bit of a long-winded answer, but genuinely it's just because it's something that, as I said to you, I'm working through a little something on the moment around your life story and, and, and kind of why you have the values and beliefs that you have now. And generally, it's, it's going to be around who you worked with and where you worked. But it's good that you said that you're working with so many different coaches because even if, let's say, you've player A who doesn't maybe, you know, like you're civil to, don't get me wrong, you get on with him and everything like that, but maybe he connects more to a different coach because, let's say, he'd be more of the same ilk or maybe, you know, they have more things in common. Like, it's good to have that diversity in a coaching group because otherwise, you know, you're going to have players marginalized straight away. Yeah, well, I think, you know, like it's not a massive thing around, you know, critical thinking or a reflective practices. You, you, you can get caught in your own bubble and you're, you're really fueled by your own biases and, you know, what your past experience have taught you. So, you know, if you're quite comfortable debating ideas, if you're quite comfortable putting things out there to be knocked, as long as everyone has the same purpose in mind to be the best you can be. So if I have an idea and you have an idea, Jeff, if we're happy to trash it out, and there's times I'm just going to go, Jeff, your idea is better. Let's go with it. Uh, and it'd be times that, you know, it's not being disrespectful. It's not being disloyal. It's about us all as a group cooperating and a little bit in, in, in competition along, uh, along other areas in a healthy way to bring the best out in the group that you work with. And that's group dynamics in general. And I think that's something that, again, this year, probably with the diversity, the coaching group I work with, um, I definitely feel like I've become a lot more open and, and a lot more comfortable with being vulnerable, etc. And again, I wish that's something maybe a few years ago I'd have been a bit more comfortable uh, with. But yeah, certainly a positive thing. But also what you said earlier about highlighting the players when they make a positive play or when they do something positive. I think as a coaching group, it's just as important when a coach was right or when a coach makes a good decision for another coach to turn around. And maybe if it was you too, you know, um, competing for the idea and his idea was the one implemented. If it works to turn to him and go, do you know what, spot on, well done and not just leave it at the player's door but also to recognize a coach's input because i don't think that's often done enough maybe especially the lower levels you know yeah you've you, again you've hit on something very topical at the moment because this is something that, that we're talking quite a bit about let me just talk about a player first so from a player point of view let's just say a player has an idea and you think yours is five percent ten percent better imagine the power of him knowing you trust him enough to implement his idea so imagine how much more you're going to get out of him or, from, for example, the defense group. So I had an opinion of how we should have packaged our 22, right, and what we should have called and how we should have done it. It triggered another idea and they came up with a suggestion. And at the time, I was like, geez, I put a lot of thought and effort into this. But then I went, OK, let's say mine is better by 10 percent. If, if they take ownership, it is. You're going to get it back 20%, 30%, 40%. And that's exactly what happened. It transpired their idea was far better than mine anyway. But I'm just saying that was good learning for me. And the same from a coaching point of view is we've had to do things so differently lately. If you imagine how much we've had to do remotely, send out videos with voiceovers, we've had to get so much better with technology. We've all probably raised the bar a little bit. And what you have is a little bit of... Um, uh, co-opetition we're all very cooperative but there's plenty of competition to say geez that was that was pretty good he's raised the bar on that I've got to bring my A game to the next one and that's a really 
healthy environment. And I think being comfortable to tell somebody, like an, another coach this morning that I work with, uh, Matt Everard, who, you know, Lee highlighted him recently as the kind of unsung hero. And I just thought that was class. What a touch, because he, he is, and it's almost doing him an injustice. He does so much work with transition group skills, the breakdown, etc. And I just thought that emotional intelligence of Lee just to highlight something like that and be able to tell somebody, I thought your presentation was brilliant. Here is why I thought it was so good. When you use that phrase, you had me. Um, and I just think that being able to do that and also say, well, did you think of actually having a pause there? And if you left that a minute or you handed that over for questions, I think it could have been even better. And that's where we've got to now. And I don't know how the process has really started. There was no real deliberate attempt to do it, but it's evolved naturally and organically quite nicely. Well, Ian, the last thing I'd like to ask you, it's just a listener question that uh, I got in earlier. And uh, just from a defensive point of view, I thought it was quite a good one. And it was, it comes from Kieran O'Donoghue and he said, what law would you like to see either implemented or changed in order to make the game better? And I know it's one that's debated an awful lot, but I just thought it'd be worth getting your, your views on. Yeah, I think there's been quite a bit of change around the breakdown. And that's definitely been something that, uh, so I make kind of a general point is that we adapted to, and we spend a lot of time talking about and practicing how we would adapt to it so that we could hit the ground running. And it took us a couple of games, as it did with, with nearly everybody else. Um, so that little change where it's favouring a jackler, that worked with our philosophy of chopping, creating access, getting people onto the deck. Um, and that fed into you know, the way we wanted to defend. So I think that whatever law changes are brought in, like you know, not being able to touch the post, that's a really positive one. Um, held up over the line, um, the game not being able to end and things like those kind of ones are obvious. Uh, choke tackle, questionable. I think it needs to be real clarity on whether that's a tackle or whether that's a maul, uh, whether you have to roll away or whether you can just lie there. I think that needs to be tidied up. Um, but other than that, for me, really, um, we're still um, fresh from adapting to that new breakdown interpretation. Um, the one that we thought would come in would be the kicking one, you know, the one, the 40 20. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at that. It didn't come in. Um, but I just think as long as they're well thought out, positive changes um, for the good of the game, um, I just like the challenge of having to adapt to them. And, you know, that's how you started the conversation around adapting. I think it's the teams that adapt to these things the best, probably have the best chance. Well, Ian, I'd like to say thanks a million for taking the time to come on the show today and for just sharing everything and being so open. No problem at all. My pleasure. And, uh, Hope I didn't uh, bore you all to death. Not at all. Well, that's it, folks. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to share and get in touch with your comments and opinions. You can also listen back to all previous episodes of the podcast on whatever platforms you listen on. That's it for me today. Thanks a million for listening. 